on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined in the studio by Gwen Agna, who for some 24 years was the beloved principal of the Jackson Street Elementary School here in Northampton. She is a school committee member now, a school committee member at large who is running for re-election. Gwen Agna, I'm so pleased you can be with us. And I want to ask you about school committees and service on school committees. And then we're going to get into some, some specifics. But the blow-up with the Amherst School Committee has been front-page news for a long time. It involves the resignation of three members of the Amherst School Committee, a fourth member from the Amherst Pelham School Committee, uh, the uh, resignation of the superintendent, a lawsuit by the assistant superintendent and two others, and so on. In East Hampton, also front-page news for a long time involving an offer of a job, then rescinded or not formally made to the first person approved to be the superintendent, then the second superintendent candidate who's offered the job or would be offered the job uh, withdrew her, her candidacy because of posts on social media. So my question for you as a member of the Northampton School Committee is, what's it like to be a member of a boring school committee? <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Um, I'd like to say it's boring on our school committee, but I wouldn't characterize it as that. I think my last two years almost of my tenure has presented us with some very difficult situations. And we did make headlines at some point when there was a con controversy at Northampton High School around embedded honors in math and also some of the uh, emails that the principal made. And oh, right. Remember now, that? Yes. now I recall. <laughs> yes. And that presented us with early in my tenure challenges. I think I didn't expect it to be as controversial, but I also had been an administrator for so long that I knew that there was a challenge to be a public figure in Northampton. Okay. So I would like to know what are the major issues facing Northampton's public schools today? Money. Money, money. We, the funding. Oh, come on, come on, be direct. <laughs> What's on your mind? It's really about funding. I think Northampton for so many years, and I've been in the system for so many years, has struggled with funding from the state. Yeah, let me note for our listeners that Gwen Agnew, prior to having been the principal at the Jackson Street School, the elementary school on Jackson Street for some 20 years, was the desegregation and early childhood administrator and coordinator for the Northampton School. So a total of some 30 years in the system. Right. Okay. Back to you, Gwen. Yes. So it, when I was previously before the principal, we had difficulty around desegregation, and I was an officer in charge of making sure our schools weren't seg segregated because they were by neighborhoods. Um, Jackson Street happened to be the highest segregated school because of its proximity to Hampshire Heights, and at that time it was called Hampton Gardens. So I needed to look at that, and I also was aware of the fact that we weren't getting the funding that we needed from the state in order to make some of those actions happen. I had forgotten about that history of Jackson Street because what the Jackson Street School was known for when you were the principal, was its inclusivity, its uh, diversity. It was the school people really wanted to go to. People moved to the neighborhood so they could 
have their kids in the Jackson Street School. What did you do to make that a reality at the school for which you were the principal? Well, I, I really was determined to see it as the value rather than a negative that we had such a high number of BIPOC families and we had a second language or first language, which was Spanish. And we were able to, together with the school council, with the school committee, with all the teachers, with the families, to really make a turnaround because at the time when I took over, it was seen as sort of the black sheep of the district. But I think it had to do with the fact that people were concerned about how to teach such a diverse population. So I was fortunate to be there that long and to hire teachers who took on that challenge and families who were committed to it as well. And succeeded. I, I don't know if, if this is a silly question or not from a non-educator, but what's the secret sauce? Um, relationships, respect, um, understanding that people come from different points of view. People have different heritages that they come from. Celebrate those when you can. And also pay attention to those who have high needs instead of sort of marginalizing or making sure that the extra um, special ed or Title I were the things that supported them. We really worked to include everybody. As you said, inclusivity was a real big challenge and also one that we met. And I think now it is some, a place that people like to go to because they feel the benefits of all of that in one school. And you continued this 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 I think exceptional educational experience for a long time and it has continued as I understand it really successfully after you you left as principal after 24 years mm -hmm. how did you create that continuity the teachers I think and the paraprofessionals and the families that are attracted to it they're all work together to make sure that everything is seen as a benefit rather than a, a negativity that some people see when they look at schools, they think, oh, the diversity is going to just bring in a lot of challenges and not make it a safe place for kids. And it really, I think the commitment on all the adults there have, has made it possible. One thing that strikes me and that I, I experienced, obviously, as an older student too, but uh, I experienced as a parent, kids learn from kids. Mm -hmm. What makes a school successful in part, it seems to me, is whether it feels like a community. Do you have support? Can you ask for assistance? Do kids help other kids uh, learn? And I'm wondering how you imbue that value of community, and if you think that's right in terms of an educational experience. Oh, I absolutely do. In fact, right now I'm writing a book for Teachers College Press and reflecting on the early days, and it really was a time when I turned to the students. The students knew what they wanted from a school, and so we worked together to make that real. We had our own code of conduct. We had our own assemblies. We spoke very eloquently about what students wanted out of their school. And they were able to help the turnaround, that is for sure. And I think, you know, I don't know if you read Andrea Vazian's column in the paper on Saturday, the idea of modeling for everyone about what it is that you want to happen in your world is so critical and you need to model that. The adults need to, but also the children. And the children did a good job at modeling that. Uh, I'd like to return, Gwen Agnew, to <laughs> Bill's original question and your response. You prioritized <laughs> the three most important things facing the school committee, money, money, and money. 
And so I'm, I'm not from Northampton. What percentage of Northampton's budget is related to the schools? Uh, it's about 50%. I think there are some that argue it's a little less than 50, but it's around 50% the city gives to the schools because we the schools have the most uh, employees, for one thing. But the city also pays for the charter school reimbursement, and they do other um, nonspecific things that really support the schools. So I think the city has come through for the the um, schools in a, a big way over the years. There's been a real priority for schools from all of our administrators at the uh, city hall. So as a school committee member, what needs do you think are being unmet because of the lack of funds? I think the needs being unmet have to do with ratios. There are some classes that are really too big. I've just heard that the art, uh, the advanced art class at the high school has 30 students in it. That's way above what I think people expect in an advanced art class. I also think that supplies have a lot to do with what you can purchase and what you can have in your classrooms, and that is also something. Staffing, I think, mainly is really one of the critical areas that we just often don't have funding for. The budget for the schools is set by the city council. Uh, you can't really determine your own budget, I, although as a school committee, you can make requests. Explain to us how that works. That is an interesting one. I've seen that over the years as a, a person on the other side, as it were. Um, we've tried to work with the mayor in determining what our needs are. The mayor is the chair of the school committee, which is really an interesting role for for her to play. But it's also true for many municipalities yes. in here in Western Massachusetts where the mayor of a city sits as an ex officio member of the school committee. Yes, uh, yes, exactly. But, you know, for us as a city, and that's good, um, an important um, thing to say is we are a city rather than a town, which is different from Amherst, so that we fall into the category of cities. We're a, we're a small city, but that's where the funding um formulas come from. It's from cities and then towns. And because we're a small city, we can't measure up to the kind of needs that Lowell or Holyoke or Springfield or Lawrence or Boston, all of those, we, we're in that category with the big people. And, um, you know, I understand that they need the funding, but Northampton has been avoided in getting funding for a long time. Right. We're not so rich that we can pay for everything the way some of the Boston suburbs or communities can do, and we're not so poor that we get a lot of state reimbursement, exactly. uh, such as Holyoke or Springfield. Yeah, that's true. Let me ask you this, Gwen Agnew. You are running for re-election for the school committee. It's a two-year term, and I would want to, I do want to know, are there issues that separate the candidates? I mean, people know you. They know your record. Mm -hmm. They know what you've accomplished in the schools. I think there's enormous trust for you as a person, as an elected official, and as a candidate. Are there issues that separate the candidates as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Aileen Davis and I were the at-large, currently at-large committee members. Say her name again? Aileen Davis. Okay. We were elected two years ago. This time... There's a third person running, Meg Robbins, so there are three people running for two positions. And I think we are all in basic agreement about our philosophy and our hopes and dreams for the schools. I think, and I, I wouldn't want to speak for Meg, I think there's been a concern over the years 
just generally about how much we get from the city. And there is a reserve in the city, as everyone knows, and the reserve has been built up over the years since Claire Higgins, I believe, maybe even before with Mary Ford, where there was a determination to make the city solvent and have a AAA rating and be able to borrow money. AAA bond rating so we can borrow money at a lower rate. Exactly it. And again, I was schooled in that as an administrator when, you know, there was a little frustration with the amount of money we would get from the city. And I, but I also knew that the bigger picture is making sure our city is solvent too, in case of an emergency that we need to be able to borrow. So maybe that is one thing that might separate. I, I, again, I can't speak for Meg Robbins, but I would suggest that we look at that a little differently only because of my experience of working in the system for so long. And I understand it's, a, it's not just one um, simple answer. We're speaking with Gwen Agna, who is a school committee member at large in Northampton running for re-election, longtime and beloved principal of the Jackson Street School. When we come back, we're going to find out what the schools will look like, say, in four years. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The future of joint pain relief is here. It's QC Kinetics, advanced regenerative medicine. This is amazing stuff. If you've been told more steroids or surgery are your only options, don't move so fast. Get a second opinion and learn more about how you can harness your body's own healing agents to attack that joint pain. I'm talking about lasting relief. QC Kinetics doesn't mask the pain. These treatments go to the very root of the problem. Using concentrated healing properties placed directly in your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue. Imagine living your life this fall with no more pain in your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, and without drugs, downtime, or surgery. Listen, life is about motion, and QC Kinetics is giving people their lives back with these all-natural treatments. Call the local medical professionals and get a free consultation today. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo, so there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. That's right. There's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Gwen Agna, school committee member at large in Northampton, longtime beloved principal at the Jackson Street School. I'd like to return in this conversation, Gwen Agna, to what your goals are as a school committee member, as a school committee member at large representing the entire city. 
What do you want to see the city's schools accomplish, say, in the next two or four or six years that is not being accomplished now and or needs to be changed in order to address and make the schools successful for the students? Well, I think I would like to see that we continue to support our administrators. That We have a new superintendent, Dr. Portia Bonner. She is I think has potential to be one of our best superintendents, and I'm excited to be a part of the school committee under her leadership. I think she is determined to look at equity and bias and making sure that we have fairness across the board in terms of both in hiring of teachers and making sure we have a little more diverse faculty and staff, and also for students to make sure that they have exposure to real issues that they face in in their lives. I also know that she and we as a school committee want to support the new initiatives around math and ELA. There are new curriculum programs that have just been uh, adopted and it's it's a big challenge for teachers to have to do something new. So we want to make sure they understand that we're really behind them in this. And lastly, I'd like to say the Thrive Act, which also, the MTA is trying to get onto the ballot this, for next year, I believe, which includes in it a requirement that we don't have to have an MCAS passage in order to get a diploma. So you'd, the Thrive Act takes away the requirement of passage of M- MCAS. It's likely this will be on the ballot in uh, uh, November of 2024. Four, so exactly. Let me ask you about a number of matters that you just mentioned. One is the new superintendent of schools in Northampton, Portia Bonner. Mm -hmm. Uh, You as a school committee and we as a community had what people, I think, almost universally feel was a really successful search um, resulting in the hiring of of Dr. Bonner. Uh, What did Northampton do right um, that might be, well, you were talking about modeling. How about modeling this behavior? Uh, other communities might want to do that. Why was it, how was it a successful search? I think it began by the mayor appointing members of the search committee that reflected the diversity of our town, and that included students on it. Our um, MASC, Massachusetts Association of School Committees, noted that she had not managed a search that had students on the committee. We had diversity on the committee. We had community members. I think that was very important. And we seemed to attract a really diverse group of applicants, which was, you know, I guess in a way a little surprise, but it was really exciting. I think it had somewhat to do with the brochure we developed that spoke about the kind of schools that we had and our intentions for our schools and what kind of community this is. And we were very pleased with the pool and, but I think Dr. Bonner was high in the ratings, and right away we knew this was somebody who was going to be great for Northampton. And she has a couple of things going on really in her favor for the moment anyway. One is there's a honeymoon period for most new superintendents, mm-hmm. many people in new positions. Um, but above and beyond that, people are really super enthusiastic yeah. about her as being a leader of the schools. I've never heard this kind of enthusiasm Mm -hmm. for a position, a high city position before, really. 
I would like to go back to something you just mentioned, Gwen Agna, which is the MCAS requirement, as a, MCAS as a graduation requirement. Where do you as an educator come out on that? From the beginning, when MCAS was first adopted, I was enthusiastic about the idea that we would have some kind of test, but it, it was plural. MCAS stands for Massachusetts Comprehensive Assessment Systems. There's an S at the end. And when it was first touted, we were given the idea that there might be portfolio assessment, there might be exhibits, there'd be a real holistic look at students and their achievements and what they know and what they can do. It morphed into just one test, and it's a high-stakes test, and as you know, in high school. But it also was um, racially and culturally biased. It, you have to take it in English if you've only been if you've been here more than a year, that alone um, made it very difficult for students to do. I you know I've often said to families, if I had to take a standardized test in Japanese after one year, I would not have been able to do that. So I, I from the beginning when it was adopted as a one test, I have been very much against it as the only assessment. There are so many ways that we can assess what children can do and what they know. So I, I'm really glad that we're looking at it, at least taking away the high stakes part of it. High st by high stakes, you mean the the requirement that it be passed by tenth and above graders yes. in order to get to the be high school diploma. a high school diploma. Exactly. Because if you don't pass, you get a piece of paper saying you attended. Yeah, and we're one of I think it's six states that still have a high stakes test. There aren't many left, and I, th I think it's time, especially Massachusetts, known for its progressiveness, really time for us to look at this and rethink our, our ability to assess what kids can do and what they know. For those who follow state politics closely, uh, they know, we know, that the Boston Globe has been a great supporter of MCAS since the beginning. It can't find a fault in MCAS, never has, never will. And editorialized on Saturday saying, well, we're against this, uh, as I, anyone who follows the Globe on this issue uh, would expect. Uh, but one th point they made, the Globe made, that I thought was interesting, was that in the states or many of the states that uh, do not have MCAS, and I think it's like 42 or 44 states do not have an MCAS-type test as a high-stakes graduation requirement. We are in a small minority of states, but, argues the Globe, a lot of those states have a standard curriculum, and so they can know more easily uh, whether or not the students are succeeding by mm -hmm. comparing apples to apples. We don't have a standard curriculum in Massachusetts. Curriculum is determined by the local schools and schools committee. Mm -hmm. So what do you make of that argument? And more specifically, is there, are there assessments that are meaningful for students during their uh, years in the public schools? Mm, that's a really good point that they made. Um, I think that one thing that DESE, Department of Education, has done is require, they have a list of curated curriculum now so that all districts are obliged to look at that curated list if they're going to get any funding for curriculum. So it's, I think the idea of standardizing it, at least in terms of evidence-based curriculum, is really a good idea. And that's why we're doing the math and the ELA now. We've chosen from that, and that will become part of the standardized curriculum in Northampton. That's been something that's been lacking. I understand that point. But I really think that um, the, uh, the other point of w what kind of assessment we can do, there are a myriad of 
assessments that can show what the kids know and what they can do. And I think the problem is that some of this assessment is is profit-driven. And I think that MCAS, which came out of Pearson, um, there's a, a there's kind of a little tricky relationship there for me as far as educators knowing what they should assess and then people who make money off of this. You just mentioned math assessments and math curriculum. That was a flashpoint. There was a I mean, it doesn't compare to East Hampton and Amherst, got it. But still, there was a big to-do in Northampton about mm-hmm. what the math curriculum is and is the honors program, sh- well, should the honors program exist and where does it exist and what was embedded and was there transparency mm-hmm. and who knew what. Where does all that stand? It stands in um, the idea that they're moving at the high school especially and at the middle school into what's called integrated math, not by name, but more about having the groups of students work together that are heterogeneously grouped. So it's different abilities that come together and have an honors track within those classes. This requires a lot on the part of the teachers. I I don't minimize the idea that you can differentiate any group. I think I was very committed to it as an elementary principal, as a teacher, that you can differentiate and have high ability and ones who are struggling together, but you really need to understand how to do that. And I'm hoping that there can be more training for teachers to understand that responsibility. But I do think in the end, it's worth doing because I think that everybody gains from that. Which brings me to a topic I really appreciate your perspective on as a school committee member and as a longtime educator. Is it the school committee's job to set curriculum? Who does this? No, no, it's not really the school committee's job. It's really the school committee does have some say in approving curriculum because it's a budgetary um, factor. But really, since ed reform in 1993, the school committee's responsibilities have moved away from being sort of in the trenches in schools to not to hiring the superintendent, to f- passing the budget, and to passing policies. So that's where we, we land as school committee. So, you are running for re-election. Is there a slogan? Is there <laughs> <laughs> Somebody put a couple of times, go Gwen. But <laughs> I don't really, you know, I have signs around that say compassion, leadership, experience. Those are the things that I really feel that do reflect me. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Gwen Agna. She is a school committee member at large in Northampton. She is running for re-election. She, of course, was the beloved longtime principal at the Jackson Street School. Gwen Agna, I hope we'll be back and you'll be back with us before the election again. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for all you've done. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. Thank you. And all you've done for the kids in Northampton. The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The jury in the Kara Rintella murder trial will hear closing arguments today in Hampshire Superior Court. Rintella faces murder charges in connection with the strangulation death of her wife, 37-year-old Anna Marie Cochran Rintella, in 2010 in their Granby home. The Commonwealth called 20 witnesses during its case, after which the defense called two. This is the fourth trial for Rintala. 
The first two concluded with mistrials after the juries were unable to reach unanimous verdicts. A third trial resulted in a conviction that was later overturned on appeal and sent back for a new trial. Massachusetts could be seeing $1 billion in research funding with the new multi-billion dollar health research agency coming to the Bay State. The National Institute of Health chose Cambridge as the hub with the Hadley nonprofit Venture Wealth tasked to run it. The White House initiative seeks to discover medical breakthroughs. Congressman Richard Neal tells Mass Live this means Massachusetts will once again have a center stage role in medical technology, innovation, and creativity. The arraignment for Michael Williams Jr., who allegedly dragged a state trooper with his car following an attempted traffic stop on I-91 in Holyoke, has been delayed again. The arraignment is now expected today. Williams had previous charges, including operating under the influence in March, an assault and battery on an officer in 2012 and again in 2020. He is currently facing eight charges, including leaving the scene of a crash that caused personal injury and assault and battery with a dangerous weapon. Mostly sunny today, a high of 66 to 70 with an east breeze at around 5 to 10 miles per hour. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 60s. Again, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Another mostly sunny day tomorrow, a high of 66 to 70. Clouds are back on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Who are the healthcare heroes in your community? Business West and Healthcare News announced the Healthcare Heroes Class of 2023. Meet this year's honorees and read their inspiring stories in Business West. Reserve tickets to the Healthcare Heroes Celebration on October 26th at Marriott in Springfield. Healthcare Heroes is presented by Elms College, Bay State Health, Health New England, and sponsored by Holyoke Medical Center, Mercy Medical Center, the Elaine Merrib Center for Nursing at UMass, and the Institute for Applied Life Science at UMass. Visit businesswest.com today for details. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. It's a farm-to-table dinner like no other. A dinner on the bucolic 55-acre campus of the Hartsbrook School in Hadley with vegetables from the Hartsbrook School farm, honey from Hartsbrook bees. Hartsbrook alum Nate Sustick, executive chef at Paul and Elizabeth's, will do the cooking. And Nate will be cooking by fire. The Hartsbrook School farm-to-table dinner, Saturday, September 30th. Good food, an auction, a convivial evening celebrating Hartsbrook education. Get tickets now at the Hartsbrook School website You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We will be joined in just a few moments by Jane Fleischman. Jane Fleischman is our show's resident sexologist. We have one of those. The title of her segment is Sex Matters, and what we will be talking about with Jane today, with Dr. Fleischman, is sex education 
uh, in the schools. And it is a potential flashpoint, a potential place where there is going to be controversy. We did have a bit of fun with a school committee member at large and candidate for re-election, uh, Gwen Agnew of Northampton, uh, about how Northampton compared to East Hampton and Amherst has had a rather boring school committee. Uh, but that's actually not true. There have been uh, some controversies uh, in the Northampton schools and in the Northampton school committees, one about the math curriculum, which had parents and school committee and teachers involved in a quite a brouhaha. Uh, and there was a, a matter of a uh, school committee policy with regard to hate speech that received, so-called hate speech, which received a lot of uh, time and attention, and I was involved in that in that dispute as well. Uh, so there's a lot that comes up with school committees. There will also be uh, contract negotiations, although those contracts are good probably for the next two years, as I understand it, uh, in Northampton. So uh, anyway, we are really pleased that Gwen Agnew could be with us today, and we are really pleased that Jane Fleischman is joining us. Dr. Fleischman, thanks to you so much for being with us, and we're particularly glad that you could be with us today because there has been a lot of coverage recently about sex ed in the schools, and there is a new curriculum statewide for sex ed in the schools. For those of our listeners who have not been kept abreast of this, this uh, new curriculum and these developments, Tell us what is happening with sex ed in the public schools today, please. Dr. Fleischman. Thanks so much for having me back again, Bill. I'm so excited because finally Massachusetts, after 25 years, has updated our sex ed curriculum. And, you know, some states are going backwards. Our state is going forwards. And, you know, if you ask most adults what they learned in sex ed when they were young, they just, well, wait, why don't I ask you? What do you remember about sex ed in schools? Do you remember it being anything but embarrassed? Do you remember anything about it? I remember hiding my head in my arms <laughs> on my desk saying, please, God, make this stop soon. That's what I remember. <laughs> right. That was, it was kind of the point of it. And the, and the teachers who taught it weren't really interested in teaching. And many of them were phys ed teachers who were kind of, you know, given this extra task and, you know, some states right now in the country are still not doing very much. Bill, I was in Indiana last month, and I was teaching a class about using sex education principles, what I call comprehensive sex education, which is exactly what we have in Massachusetts now. And somebody raised their hand and she said, you know, they just passed a bill in our state capitol that says that we can't teach any kind of sex ed. It's like... Okay, they're going in a different direction. So, well, uh, if I may, uh, Jane, this is Buzz, and uh, you didn't ask the question of me, and the answer was I was raised in Georgia, and we did not have sex education. But I remember when the conversation came up, and there were parents who said, "That's not your business. That's our mm. province to teach our kids." So, Absolutely. what do you say to to those people who say it doesn't belong in the schools; it belongs in the living rooms at home? Right. You know, Buzz, I'm so I'm sorry I didn't give you a chance to respond. You're absolutely right. The the parents who who are kind of the naysayers around sex ed have really been winning this battle for many years. But the only problem with their argument is they're not the the research shows that they're not actually doing the sex education that children 
really need and ask for at home. And so we can't just rely on parents. Parents do a great job, and parents have their own values, their own ethics, their own religious beliefs, their own cultural understandings. But we also need to back that up with, in our public schools, with really good comprehensive sex ed, which is what we've got. And as a sex educator, I really am excited. So I was wondering if this morning I could test your knowledge a little bit, you guys. Would you be interested in a very short quiz about sex ed? I'm going to put my head back in my arms and hide on the console here in the studio. <laughs> That's what I'm ready to do. But okay. if you insist, I, I uh, okay. What you what do you have for okay. it, Doctor okay. Fleischman? Buzz, you're on. <laughs> okay. Number one, sex education is a a hit TV show on Netflix where the kids are doing peer sex ed with other students, often teaching their parents as well. B more than the birds and the bees. D, less than adequate in most states, and D, all of the above. What do you think, Buzz? D, all of the above. You're good. Bill? Well, if he's good, I want to be good. I, <laughs> I always struggle struggle and strive to be good. I'm going to go with what, whatever Buzz says. <laughs> how, many, how many states in the country have some type of sex ed in their public schools? A, 39 states plus the District of Columbia. B, all 50. C, 2. Or D, just Massachusetts. I would go with, let's see, the 39 or 50. <laughs> I'm going to go with 39. 39 is right, plus the district. In fact, sex ed varies really widely all over the country. Currently, there are 39 states in D.C. that mandate some kind of sex ed and or HIV ed. But, you know, a lot of them only teach what's called abstinence only. And so some of those states, their guidance on how sex ed is taught is really different. So the decisions are often left up to individual school districts. And I'm so glad you had Gwen on just now talking about our school district because often there's kind of a patchwork of inconsistent policies within different states. And the sex ed somebody receives can come down to what school district they live in or which school they attend. So I have can, can we can we interrupt we yeah. we, inter, we interrupt this quiz where Buzz and I are yeah. doing extremely well I'd point out um, I think so to think ask so. you two about two aspects of the information you just shared with us one is what is the curriculum and what should be the curriculum for sex ed either as a course or on its own or as part of the uh, health classes in the schools sure. uh, well let's start there what should okay, the well, curriculum be. Well, it depends on who you are and who you ask, Bill. So in some um, Republican administrations, we had federal funding for abstinence only, which means only teaching kids how to abstain from having sex. In other federal um, uh, presidential years, we've had other kinds of funding for what I was um, referring to before as comprehensive sex education, which includes all sorts of things including the stuff that we're now including in Massachusetts. And many teachers, by the way, in Northampton, have already been including, you know, not just talking about sexual behavior but or abstinence, but also sexual orientation, gender expression, gender identity, communication, consent, HIV and STI prevention. You can see that it's much beyond just what it is, the birds and the bees, or that kind of blue plate special that people used to think about. And so 
for many of the teachers, the health teachers in Northampton, I've spoken to a couple of them, and they're already doing a lot of this, even before the frameworks were changed, because they saw the importance of it. And now they're very excited that the whole state of Massachusetts is really in line with comprehensive success. Dr. Jane Fleischman, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about assessments and whether schools are working, being effective, are kids learning, and are they getting experiences that is going to prepare them for their future lives. What I would like to know from you is whether there is some methodology or method Mm -hmm. for determining whether sex ed works. Do we have Mm -hmm. data on Fewer pregnancies, well, less less fewer uh, sexual right. cases of sexual transmitted disease, and the like. Uh, fewer pregnancies. Does it work? Right. We have some empirical data um, based on both both the Goodmacher Institute and CICUS, um the the national organization that's sex ed for social change, and they've been around for probably forty or fifty years. Um, what they've found is the states that do not require sex education to be medically accurate, or the states that only require abstinence-only sex education have the highest teen pregnancy rates and the highest HIV and STI rates for teens. And so empirically, one might deduce from that. Now, again, it's not causality, but we might deduce from that that with decent sex education that's comprehensive, we can see in other states, like in Massachusetts, that the teen pregnancy rate, the STI sexually transmitted infection rate, and HIV rate among teens is much lower. So, so that would be a way of um, looking at the impact. But again, you know, we have to really understand that some of these states, like, like 15 states in this country, though, don't require that their sex ed must be medically accurate. That means they could be teaching about sex in any way that isn't correct. Amazing. And of course, you know that there's been a tremendous backlash against both LGBTQ individuals in general and trans individuals, particularly in the schools, around legislation that is uh, either proposed or has passed banning the teaching of LGBTQ issues in, in sex ed. And according to the ACLU, there's over 496 anti-LGBTQ pieces of legislation in almost every state in the country, except about five of them. Pending now, and, that, that are pending right, now. Yeah, right, today, right today. And, you know, when, when they passed the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, although it has a different formal title, you know, most of those bills target trans youth, trans health, but also many are directly concerned about teaching LGBTQ issues in the public schools. In Florida... If a kid goes up to the teacher and says, I think I'm gay, and the teacher engages in a conversation, that teacher could be fired. So there's a lot of backlash around this this area of sex education and many areas of sex education. I have to say that Massachusetts is really on the positive side, and we are in a new era right now, and it's very exciting. We are speaking with Dr. Jane Fleischman. She is our show's resident sexologist. She is a sex educator. And when we come back, I want to talk about an aspect of what Buzz Eisenberg brought up before, which is a lot of parents say, well, this is not the business of the schools. On the other hand, there are a lot of parents who say, thank God the schools are doing it because I don't want to. We'll be right back. 
choice. Pick up the needle, press pause, or turn the radio off. Will that stop us, Pep? I doubt it. All right, then, come on, spin. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate. On the one hand, I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Jazz abounds downtown this weekend. The Northampton Jazz Festival, celebrating Max Roach with the Max Roach Centennial Concert this Saturday at the Academy of Music. The Northampton Jazz Festival, kicking off this Friday with the Jazz Strut. Free performances at seven breweries, bars, and restaurants downtown. The Strut starts at 4.30 in Pulaski Park with the Jeff Holmes Big Band. Saturday morning, the festival gets going at 10.30 in Pulaski Park as the expandable brass band leads a jazz parade through downtown. Ten free shows around town, including the return of Matthew Fat Cat Rivera spinning rare jazz 78s in the park. Saturday evening, the festival climax, the Max Roach Centennial Concert at the Academy of Music. An all-star band led by South Hadley-born Roach disciple Joe Farnsworth with George Coleman and Christian Sands. Get complete details at NorthamptonJazzFest.org. Jazz abounds downtown this weekend, the Northampton Jazz Festival. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Dr. Jane Fleischman, our show's resident sexologist. She is a sex educator. And I would like to know from you, Dr. Fleischman, uh, what are the crucial pieces of the new curriculum or the statewide curriculum, and do you approve of them? Um, well, first of all, it's not really a curriculum. It's a framework from which different school districts can develop their own uh, decisions around which curriculum they will use because there's lots of different um, curriculums out there for uh, any grade from, you know, uh, elementary, middle school, and high school. And so in the state of Massachusetts, the new framework covers not just sex education, but also how phys ed classes should be taught, uh, about information on substance abuse, about ways to keep children safe from gun violence, ways to keep children safe from social media influences. So there's a lot in the framework, including all of that and a more comprehensive approach to sex education. So when we say comprehensive, basically what we're talking about are the areas of sexuality writ large, not just sexual behavior or sexual activity, and not just 
abstinence, but also contraception. I would like to know from you, Dr. Fleischman, uh, and I'm just going to, uh, I guess, reveal the problems of aging, but I would like to know this. Is there more open discussion in schools and among kids about sex today than there was 20, 30, 40 years ago, or is it still the kind of a forbidden, foreboding, uh, awkward conversations generally? It's a really, it's a really great question. Well, it's really a local issue. It depends on the teacher, the teacher's comfort, and the teacher's training. So in our school system, we have some great teachers who are health ed teachers, and they are doing a fantastic job in Northampton. And one of the things that they do is they really continue to do professional development as much as they can to keep up on all the latest research and the latest findings around what's important to kids. What I've noticed um, being at JFK and also at NHS, uh, Northampton High, is that if you just listen to the teachers and the kids' level of compassion, the level of trust, the level of sense of responsibility and accountability, the kids are learning around, they're, they're developing a sense of their own voices, okay? And they're developing a sense of who they are and the kind of choices they want to make, both around their sexual lives as well as their uh, professional lives, their relationship lives, their school lives, etc. And one of the big issues that I think is different today, Bill, than it was 50 years ago or whenever it was, that I can't remember when I was in, in um, school, and that is the kids are very interested in both gender identity and gender expression. And those were areas that really weren't covered very much in any of the sex ed curriculum. Um, earlier, and there are areas that kids are very concerned about, and a lot of kids are really struggling with how do they talk to people about the the inner um, authentic person that they are um, as opposed to what people might think they are. And so that's a big change, and I think that's very exciting. Uh, Dr. Fleischman, I know that there are some things that are unassailably important to kids to be able to speak about in the classroom, like no means no, like intimacy is non-exploitative, and, and the like. But um, how do you create in the silly environment of a classroom and what kids do with each other outside of the classroom, how do you create a safe place to talk about those kinds of things where kids can actually adopt what they're learning? Um, many of the health ed teachers, Buzz, adopt um, early on in the semester a set of classroom um, commitments that all students and the teacher all commit to in terms of listening respectfully, in terms of really understanding that difference of opinion might come up. Uh, for instance, so many uh, of our students in Northampton schools come from different kinds of backgrounds. And their parents, as you said earlier, will have different kinds of values and sensibility about what's right and what's wrong. And those kids need to be respected. All of the kids need to be respected, whatever their family's values are around sexuality and sex education. You know, one of the parents who are protesting this new framework said that it will encourage children to keep too much from their parents about their gender identity. I thought that was so interesting. So why would you not want someone to be able to talk about 
these important issues for the kids. The students in the classrooms are developing commitments and guidelines and ground rules through which they can have these conversations and kind of on a mini level develop the kinds of respect that the teachers want the kids to be able to have with each other when they're discussing really sensitive issues around sexuality. I think this is a one-word one answer. Are these frameworks now in effect for Massachusetts schools, or this is in the future? Um, no, they can, start go, they can start being in effect right now. Well, I think we're going to conclude with on that optimistic note. I would uh, point out, I was looking at this while we were talking, uh, there is a book that goes back to the late 1960s called Oh, Sex Education, and it was about the big fight about whether or not to allow sex education in schools. A fabulous book. It's been a controversy for decades. It will continue, and we appreciate your insights. Thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. Really appreciate your time and expertise. Great to be with you all. Thanks so much, Bill. See you. Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash New England. A public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And uh, this is that weekly segment that we all always look forward to with Brian Adams. And Brian, I've got to tell I've been waiting for this segment for a month since you told us it was coming on. So who do you have and what are we going to be talking about? I am so excited. So I was at the Cape this summer, uh, fortunate enough to be there with my family and in-laws, and I was reading this remarkable book. And I don't know if you've been around someone who's reading a book and they can't shut up about it. And my family was just had to be immersed in the topic. <laughs> and, I, and I interrupted, whoa, what about this? Whoa, what about this? And I was sort of driving them crazy, but they were also so interested. Elliot Schrafer is our guest today. He is the author of numerous Books. Uh, he's award-winning New York Times best-selling author. Numerous books, mainly for young adults and kids. And this book, Queer Ducks: The Natural World of Animal Sexuality, just had me enthralled. Elliot, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So, Elliot, uh, back before I read your book, when I had that um, sort of marvelous uh, experience of watching two animals going at it, or I was watching a nature program or something. I just assumed that these were two heterosexual animals that were mating. 
Uh, I mean, why else would they be going at it, right? Uh, and then I read your book, and it just changed how I view the animal world. Um, I mean, my mind was blown. It, it turns out that the range of sexual expression in animals is just as varied as it is in humans. In fact, even, uh, even more so in some ways. Uh, in a lot of animals, bisexuality is the norm, um, which I just found so fascinating and so interesting. Can you talk about what the premise of your book is and how you came to write such a marvelous book? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I came up through the animal studies program at NYU. I just got my master's degree recently. It's kind of been during my middle age. And I was really surprised. My main interest was evolutionary biology. And I was really surprised to read all this research that's come out over the last couple of decades into same-sex sexual behavior in animals, which as someone who loves natural selection and evolution, seemed like it would, when it did occur, should be like an aberration or an anomaly because it doesn't provide more offspring for the next generation. So why would natural selection over the centuries and millennia produce these kind of behaviors? Um, but what's actually been happening is there's two things that have been happening. One is just as you note, pointed out, when you see two animals, one mounting the other, we assume it's heterosexual, um, but most animals are sexually monomorphic, which means you can't actually tell males and females apart just by looking at them. So like a pigeon, a squirrel, you don't actually know the sex of those animals just by, just by looking at it. Um, and then that combined with this assumption that sex in animals was only for procreation led to this presumption of heterosexuality. This pr very reasonable presumption, right? Like, of course, animals should be wanting to produce offspring. Like that's what nature is about. When we know as humans that we have sex for many reasons, only one of which is procreation. In fact, it's probably most often we're not trying to produce offspring when we have sex, right? And so animals, it turns out, are reaping the same variety of benefits that humans are. And the, the main one is what's called oxytocin bonding, which is, you know, any pleasurable physical activity between individuals um, will produce oxytocin. And this is across the animal kingdom. Even ants have a version of oxytocin in their system. Um, and it's called the bonding hormone, and it makes you feel close and connected with whoever you're having sex with, whether that sex is heterosexual or homosexual. So it's really a big surprise, and it's kind of the most exciting growth area in animal behavior science today. Bill, you have a question. I do. This blows my mind. I thought that human beings were different from other animals because we engage in sex for pleasure. And now you're telling me that other animals do this as well? Yeah. Well, for example, like the bonobos, which are a species of ape that is pretty much tied with chimpanzees as our closest relative, the most frequent sexual activity among bonobos is between females. And obviously that's not producing offspring. But what it does produce is this really connected, close-knit group of females that basically run this, their society. They're matriarchal. And as a result, they're much more peaceful than the chimpanzees are because these sexually connected mothers don't want any of their offspring to be hurt. And so they form this um, much more uh, peace-loving matriarchy. There's like no recorded instances of uh, fatal violence among bonobos, whereas chimpanzees, as Jane Goodall found out in the 60s, will kill each other very frequently and are much more patriarchal and male-dominated too. Elliot, I would love to have the pleasure of just reading a quick section of your book on this whole issue with the difference between chimpanzees and bonobos that I just found so interesting. So 
genetically, we are uh, very similar to chimpanzees and bonobos. They're our two closest relatives in the animal world. They're both great apes. But I want to read this section. I'm on in um, uh, Elliot Schaefer's Queer Ducks books, page 34. In a now famous experiment, a primatologist tried introducing a source of honey to a group of chimps and then to a group of bonobos. Both sets of apes got really excited by the honey. It's their equivalent of candy. In the group of chimps, the strong young males took control of the honey and beat up any females or elderly males who tried to cut it and get food. This was the tough guys in control. They remained in control. Everyone else hid away because the males were riled up by the exciting new treat and riled up chimps get aggressive. When the same experiment was repeated with bonobos, it went very differently. First, they all circled the honey source. Then they got really tense, showing their teeth and shrieking. You could sense their anxiety. How are they going to distribute this delicious food without fighting over it? The question was overwhelming, so none of them touched any of the honey at first. That's when, well, they started an orgy. Not just two or three of them either. All of the bonobos start having sex with one another, male with female, female with female, male with male, young and old, and everything in between. Some was full-on sexual contact. Some was more like what we call heavy petting. Bonobos would kiss, too, with wide-open mouths. Only once they were all blissed out did one ape casually take a slurp of honey. Another took some, too, then another. Soon they were all sharing the food. Little infants took honey right out of the jaws of big males in their prime, and no one minded. None of them got aggressive because they were in too good a mood. I, I mean, that's, that is stunning. I mean, that's just an amazing segment from this, from this amazing, amazing book. Um, I, I, and I want to say we're more like chimpanzees, right? <laughs> and... Uh, and I and except on Valentine's Day when we bring everybody honey. Exactly, exactly. Well, what it, what it, interesting too. What it, like nature very rarely produces a perfect metaphor, but these two animals that are tied with humans as being our closest relatives, each share almost ninety nine percent of their DNA, have such different models of how to be with one another. One where you lead with power and violence, and another where you lead with uh, sex and love. Um, and as one uh, bonobo scientist. Uh, talked about it. He said, you know, chimps resolve sexual issues through power and bonobos resolve power issues through sex. And it's two very different societies result. And I I, want to get a bumper sticker that says, be more like bonobos. (laughs) Um, I think that would be a good good bumper sticker for a valley. Um, I'm talking with Elliot Schrafer. He's author of Queer Ducks. He's author of lots of books for young adults and kids. This is Theoretically, a book for young adults, but oh my goodness, as an adult, I just found it fascinating. Elliot, I'm intrigued by the title of the book, uh, Queer Ducks. Most conventional biologists would not use the word queer to describe animal sexuality. They'd use the term same-sex behavior. How did you decide on the use of queer in the title? Yeah, and it's, you know, as someone as I am a gay man and as someone as part of the queer community, I feel like we've had a lot of conversation around nomenclature. And obviously that's a word that had a lot of negative connotations and still does when it's used in some context. It was used to hurt people and and, and to ostracize them. Uh, but at the same time, it's been reclaimed over the last few decades. You have whole fields like queer theory and queer history that really have taken the word back. 
And around animals, I, I wanted to use it because it was more inclusive than um, simply calling talking about uh, homosexual behavior in animals, because there's also a lot of animals that complicate sexual binaries. I have chapters on, you know, the, I mean, fish, the fish pride flag would take hours to color in, like the number of <laughs> sexual and gender identities that fish have are just off the charts. And so I have a whole chapter on sex change in, in fish, which is part of their haremic societies. So you have, you know, you might have a, a whole group of male fish with one female in charge or vice versa. Uh, and then once that fish in charge dies, whoever's at the top of the hierarchy of the other gender will change sex um, over the course of their life and then become that other, that other sex over their lifespan. And so that's something that doesn't neatly fit into um, any one of our LGBTQIA plus identities. And I just like the inclusiveness of queerness. And queer ducks is just one of those phrases that I'm realizing now actually Gen Z doesn't have much exposure to. They're like, why'd you call it this? But anyone who's over 40 is like, it's an expression, right? Like, oh, like, oh that, you know, that person's a queer duck. Um, and so I just like the familiarity of it as well. Um, but it was definitely something I, th I thought a lot about. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great title and it's a great book. Uh, Anti-gay activists in the past have uh, sort of justified their attacks on the LGBTQ community by saying same-sex behavior is unnatural. Um, the research in your book does just the opposite. It shows that in fact, in many in many species, bisexuality is is, is the norm. Um, huge number of different species of animals where individuals might identify as queer. Uh, has your book been embraced by the LGBT community? Uh, has it been used to combat such uh, attacks on the on the community? Yeah, well, I mean, and there's there's a way in which this naturalness argument, which has a long history of being used against LGBTQ people, um, is you know it shouldn't we shouldn't have to be natural to be accepted and loved. Um, there's a lot of things that we do as humans that are unnatural, like read books that doesn't exist elsewhere in nature and no one's saying that, that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but at the same time, this pernicious argument that there is something against nature about LGBTQIA plus people is, it's been a way to, to say that anything is permitted against them. Uh, and so when you look at the anti-sodomy statutes, including um, the statute in Uganda, which has is a capital punishment statute against, quote, aggravated homosexuality, words like unnatural are attached to them almost across the board, including in the US when we had, it was, you know, as recently as the early 2000s, we finally got the last sodomy law um, off the books um, through a Supreme Court judgment. Unnaturalness was a big part of the argumentation then too. Uh, and so it's a really powerful call in legal circles. And so I think it's very important to combat this idea that there is something unnatural about same-sex sexual behavior in humans because it has huge number of corollaries in animals. Nature published a study just a couple of years ago, putting the number of species at 1,500 and counting with significant peer-reviewed research showing substantial same-sex sexual behaviors. So you, you can no longer, no longer holds any intellectual weight to say that uh, LGBTQ people are, are unnatural in, in who they are and what they do. Elliot Schreffer, this is Buzz. Um, so I remember, I was raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was remembered, I think it was... I was in pu puberty. I don't know if it was 11 or 12 or 13 or something like that. We went to the Atlanta uh, Zoo. Uh, before the big habitats, they, they've reformed. They were little cages. And I saw an ape masturbating with my mother right next to me. And my mother was embarrassed, and I was embarrassed. And my mother said, this is what happens when you cage animals. 
is that what or is it normal is masturbation normal in the animal kingdom yeah i mean even deer will masturbate they rub against vegetation uh and then we'll go all the way with it um and this happens in in nature and it's interesting this zoo hypothesis was frequently proposed as an explanation for the really obvious homosexual behavior happening in zoos or things like masturbation that something had scrambled the animal systems and one really famous example is penguins, um, which they've been really messing with zoo directors like for about 120 years. It was as early as the 19-teens <laughs> in Edinburgh where they realized like all their penguins are bisexual and the public realized it too. And they had to scramble to find an explanation for this. And then more recently in 2006, in Central Park Zoo, Roy and Silo, two male penguins bonded and actually raised um, a chick that they were given by a zookeeper named Tango. And it was this topic of a picture book and Tango makes three. Uh, and at the time, you know, it was thought like, oh, this is just, they're making the best of a bad situation by living in a zoo. Um, when actually in 2010, we finally launched a, a giant study of wild penguins, uh, looking at a colony of 200,000 penguins in Antarctica and seeing who was courting whom. Uh, and you can't just look at a penguin and know if it's male or female. So they actually had to go in and do blood tests to find out who was male and who was female and found that a third of their courtship displays were same sex. So this is a wild population, no human intervention, um, and that observed like about a third of them. Uh, and, you know, penguins are really promiscuous, so they were all canoodling outside of their union. So every egg got fertilized that was going to be fertilized. But as far as who was bonding together to raise these eggs, uh, a third of those bonding ceremonies were, were female, female or male, male. Elliot so just has kind of nailed that, the for that theory. Elliot, as Brian promised, this is just such an interesting conversation. We're going to take a break. We're speaking with Elliot Schreffer, the author of Queer Ducks and Other Animals The Natural World of Animal Sexuality. We will come back right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3 right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400-WHMP. The future of joint pain relief is here. It's QC Kinetics, advanced regenerative medicine. This is amazing stuff. If you've been told more steroids or surgery are your only options, don't move so fast. Get a second opinion and learn more about how you can harness your body's own healing agents to attack that joint pain. I'm talking about lasting relief. QC Kinetics doesn't mask the pain. These treatments go to the very root of the problem. Using concentrated healing properties placed directly in your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue. Imagine living your life this fall with no more pain in your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, and without drugs, downtime, or surgery. Listen, life is about motion, and QC Kinetics is giving people their lives back with these all-natural treatments. Call the local medical professionals and get a free consultation today. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Camonito Steakhouse in downtown Northampton? Correct! 
Perfect. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Caminito Steakhouse in downtown Northampton is all about its steak and a whole lot more. An eclectic menu, a great bar area, and a superior wine list make Caminito Steakhouse a great place for a special night out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We're returning to this absolutely fascinating conversation between Brian Adams and Elliot Schreffer, the author of Queer Ducks and Other Animals, The Natural World of Animal Sexuality. Brian? Uh, in the book, Elliot, there's short... What, one thing I found so interesting is at the beginning or end of each chapter, there are short uh, segments which are interviews with wildlife biologists, which I just found so interesting. Um, one of the questions that you ask in this in this interview is how researchers' sexual sexual identity informs their work. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I wanted to do two things there. One is, I think young people especially have this very narrow impression of who gets to do science. Uh, and it's generally, they think of these, you know, middle-aged white guys in lab coats, right? And so I wanted to sort of expand their view. Like uh, we have a lot of, a much more diverse field of young scientists today than ever before. There's still work to be done, but I wanted them to see some models of, of the sorts of people in, in different gender identities, racial backgrounds, uh, national backgrounds doing science. But also I think we've, history is, is, is much further along in this reckoning about this awareness that it matters who does history. Like history is the product of historians. And so if whichever culture they're coming from is gonna sort of skew or influence their, their research. In science, we've, we haven't really taken that same scrutiny to science. And I think we've had this impression that it doesn't really matter the biography of the science, scientists. Like study, a study is a study, the math is the math, and it's all data sets. When actually it does matter who's doing the looking as we see with these sexually monomorphic animals that we see scientists who have been studying them over decades, just presuming and never actually checking under the skirts of these animals to see who's mounting whom um, and making the wrong assumptions about, about who's, who is having sex acts with each other. Um, one of the examples I really loved was through Conrad Lorenz, who was a Nobel Prize winning ornithologist, talked about one of his colleagues who raised pigeons. And he would, in order to find out who was male and who was female, he would put two pigeons in a cage and see who mounted whom, and then record the mounter as male and the mountee as female. Uh, and then had this big sheaf of data about finally he got to the, figured out of these hundreds of, of pigeons who was male and who was female. And then found out once the egg laying season happened that it was basically all scrambled and all almost random. And he had to go back and look at um, what he had recorded as his data. And he found out it wasn't actually, whoever was mounting the other one was just the one that was in the cage first. So it was a way of like, showing territoriality and, and dominance against the other the other pigeon that was the mounter in these sexual relationships sometimes that was a female mounting a male it was a female mounting a female these pigeons were communicating through um, their sexual expression they weren't trying to fertilize each other uh, and that's just a case in which who he was and what he was thinking about he wasn't considering um, the fact that there could be bisexual behavior in these animals influenced the science that was being done because it allowed him to make a, a leap that he shouldn't have as far as what the purpose was for this sex. And I think it does matter who scientists are. And when we have a broad range of scientists doing science, we have a better range of science coming out as the output. It does matter who we are. That's a very essential truth. Um, Elliot, you've just used two, uh, two words, and they're going to be our science words of the day today. <laughs> One is monomorphic. 
uh, monomorphic being, um, you can't tell the difference between sexes just by looking at them, and you referred to penguins and, and pigeons. Um, the other science word of the day is canoodling. I love that you use that word. It's a euphemism, euphemism, I guess, for, for having sex. Um, Elliot, I want to talk about this segment on bottlenose dolphins in your book. You have a chapter on it. Um, you write that, quote, dolphins are some of the few animals that are like humans in their capacity for same-sex orientation. Some male dolphins simply prefer to spend their lives in a sexual union with other male dolphins. Uh, can you elaborate on on that and tell us more about that? Yeah. Well, so and bottlenose dolphins are like the most common uh, species of dolphin. And there's a long-standing research site that's very well-funded in Shark Bay, Australia, that's been studying dolphins for decades. Uh, and it was long known through that that male friendship was the structuring element of dolphin society. It's actually the only lasting union between dolphins is these bonds between males. So two males will join up, spend their lives together, invite females in for a few weeks. Once she's fertilized, she goes off to raise her calf alone or with other females. And then they'll live with their calf for a few years, but then even the mother and calf part ways. But these males will spend their lives together. Uh, and it wasn't until 2006 that Janet Mann, who runs this site, felt safe enough to publish on the mechanism of this male friendship, which is incredibly frequent sexual activity. Uh, on average, 2.4 times an hour, these males will have oh, sex. Well, hold which, on, hold on. Two point, whoa, stop the process. All right, pull your car to the side of the road <laughs> if you're listening to this. Two and a half times per hour. And they do Dolph it on porpoise. Dolph oh, God, please. Uh, um, so, okay. Could I, could I interrupt? And remembering that this is a G-rated program, how do dolphins do it? Uh-oh. <laughs> Um, well, you, you can um, stop me or bleep me if I go too No, far. no, we don't want to bleep you. Just in, in a scientific, medically, and age-appropriate for eight-year-olds way, tell <laughs> yes. us how dolphins do it. I never, it never occurred to me that dolphins did it, dolphins much less two and a half times an hour. Yes. They're very, very expressive and have a huge variety of ways of having sex. Um, so beware before you look it up on YouTube because you will find a lot. I will say one of the dolphin papers had my favorite caption of all time beneath a picture. And it just said the owner of the erection was not identified. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's let's leave it there while we still have a program. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but it's, it's really, so obviously these male dolphins aren't having uh, offspring, but the majority of them are also having sex with females. So still producing offspring, they're, they're not like some evolutionary dead end, but they're using the mechanism of this really frequent sex to form these incredibly close unions, which gives them social power within these broader dolphin societies. So like, and that's the same, you know, theorization around uh, homosexuality in ancient Greece, which was, you know, you'd have this the idea that like a band of soldiers that were sexually connected would be even closer and unified than one that wasn't. Um, which you can see how far we've come now in our messaging around male sexuality. Uh, Mike, Ollie, Elliot, we have like two minutes left, and I have about five hours of questions for you. Maybe we can get get you to come back. You've written a lot of books, uh, mainly for young adults, um, some of which have been just just remarkably well received. Do you have a new project in the works that you're working on? Yeah, I have a book coming out next month. It's called Charming Young Man. It's a um, YA historical novel about a real life figure who's a young French piano prodigy um, who I discovered through his painting by John Singer Sargent, which is in the Seattle Art Museum. But he was like the toast of high society at the age of 17, was supposed to be this great new 
literary and musical figure in Paris and then kind of disappeared from history, like made the wrong friends, had his social connections poisoned. So uh, I'm, I wrote the novelization of his life. It's called Charming Young Man. It'll be out uh, October 10th. I would really encourage listeners to go onto Elliot's uh, website. It's Elliot Schrafer, S-C-H-R-E-F-E-R. You can see all of the different books that he's uh, that he has written. And I would really encourage folks to um, to check out uh, Queer Docs. It's a it's a remarkable book. And Brian, it, uh, it really is remarkable. We think of, when I think of sodomy laws, which which Elliot uh, was speaking about earlier as unnatural sex. We've been sort of laughing and chuckling our way through this, but I'm astonished. There's nothing unnatural about this. this is in the natural world. This is animal-human sexuality involves same-gender sexuality, and it's nothing unnatural according to what I'm learning right now. Yeah, yeah. In fact, bisexuality seems seems to be the norm. So check out Queer uh, Ducks. Uh, ideally, buy it for Elliot's benefit. Uh, Elliot, I'm a little embarrassed <laughs> to say I did get it out of the library, so I hope you're okay uh, with that. Get out of the library. That sounds great, that, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much. We've been talking with Elliot Schrafer. He's author of Queer Ducks, uh, The Natural World of Animal Sexuality, um, a really good read, and really uh, encourage our listeners to do that. I mean, it sounds like an important read, and I'm going to have to read it myself. So it thank is. you so much, Elliot, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Brian, as always, thank you. I've been edified. Nice. Good. We'll be right back. We're going to be talking about Girls on the Run and the Sneaker Soiree. Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The jury in the Kara Rintella murder trial will hear closing arguments today in Hampshire Superior Court. Rintella faces murder charges in connection with the strangulation death of her wife, 37 year old Anna Marie Cochran Rintella, in 2010 in their Granby home. The Commonwealth called 20 witnesses during its case, after which the defense called two. This is the fourth trial for Rintala. The first two concluded with mistrials after the juries were unable to reach unanimous verdicts. A third trial resulted in a conviction that was later overturned on appeal and sent back for a new trial. Massachusetts could be seeing $1 billion in research funding with the new multi-billion dollar health research agency coming to the Bay State. The National Institute of Health chose Cambridge as the hub with the Hadley nonprofit Venture Wealth tasked to run it. The White House initiative seeks to discover medical breakthroughs. Congressman Richard Neal tells Mass Live this means Massachusetts will once again have a center stage role in medical technology, innovation, and creativity. The arraignment for Michael Williams Jr., who allegedly dragged a state trooper with his car following an attempted traffic stop on I-91 in Holyoke, has been delayed again. The arraignment is now expected today. Williams had previous charges, including operating under the influence in March, an assault and battery on an officer in 2012 and again in 2020. He is currently facing eight charges, including leaving the scene of a crash that caused personal injury and assault and battery with a dangerous weapon. 
Mostly sunny today, a high of 66 to 70 with an east breeze at around 5 to 10 miles per hour. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 60s. Again, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Another mostly sunny day tomorrow, a high of 66 to 70. Clouds are back on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Branford Marsalis is one of the most influential figures in contemporary music. He led the Tonight Show Band. He's played with Sting and the Grateful Dead. He's done Broadway, classical, but the center of Branford Marsalis' musical universe is the Branford Marsalis Quartet. He's bringing the quartet to UMass October 5th. From New Orleans' first family of jazz, Branford Marsalis, saxophonist, band leader, National Endowment for the Arts Jazz Master, three-time Grammy winner, bringing his quartet to the Frederick C. Tillis Performance Hall. This celebrated jazz ensemble is known for its fearless and uncompromising interpretations of a kaleidoscopic range of material, original compositions, jazz, and popular classics. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center box office. An evening with Branford Marsalis and his quartet, Thursday, October 5th at UMass Amherst. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back. There's a really interesting and I dare say important organization that's headquartered here in Northampton serving the four western counties of Massachusetts, the executive director of which is Allison Berman. It's called Girls on the Run, and Allison is here in studio with us. Thank you for joining us today, Allison. Thank you for having me. So tell us about Girls on the Run. How old is this organization? Who does it serve? So Girls on the Run, it's a national organization, but we are Girls on the Run Western Mass and serve all four Western Mass counties. And the way I describe it is a really strong social-emotional program that also integrates running. So uh, we do a fall and a spring season, and each season runs for 10 weeks, and each lesson has a theme, like how to stand up for yourself, how to choose your friends, how to identify emotions. Each team does a community impact project, and all the while they're also training to run a 5K. And then at the end of the season, all the kids from Western Mass come together. Um, We started in 2015 and have served over 8,000 kids since then. Each year we serve over 2,000 kids. I have to tell you, our daughter, Asha, mm-hmm. um, who now lives in Portland, Oregon, Asha was uh, raised here in western Massachusetts in Ashfield, attended Mohawk Trail Regional mm-hmm. High School, which has long been a great track team for a Division Three school and has won state championships too many times to count. 
and Western Mass Championship. She began running, running in seventh grade. She's now, I think, 54 years of age. Mm-hmm. She, she uh, running is part of her, who she is, and she's an educator, and um, it's been an important part of her, the educational yeah. uh, effort on her part to teach especially girls how important running is to their life. Why is that? So we use running as a way to teach other important life lessons. Um, so it helps kids increase their confidence. Um, and especially for young girls and people who identify as girls, a lot of the studies show that around that age, between third, eighth grade, girls' confidence declines. They drop out of youth sports, um, especially after the pandemic as you all know, there's a huge mental health crisis. Um, and so what we found is that this is helping kids tremendously in terms of both their self-confidence, their relationships with peers, and they're getting, it's increasing their physical activity. How long have you, Allison Berman, Berman been involved in Girls on the Road? Um, I helped bring it to Western Mass in 2015. So that's about eight, nine years ago. Yeah, we're in our ninth, yeah, our ninth year. And how many girls do you think have been served by Girls on the Run? We've so our Western Mass chapter has served over eight thousand kids. We're probably close to nine thousand kids wow. this year. Yeah, that's a lot of lives to impact. It's a lot of lives. It's pretty amazing. And our program is run by volunteer coaches. Um, our coaches are teachers, parents, community members, and they're incredible. And they're the ones that bring the program to life. What makes them incredible? They so they they're volunteering their time. Um, many of our coaches have coached multiple seasons. Some of them have coached all 17 seasons that we've been in existence. Um, A lot of our coaches are teachers and they keep coming back because they say they see the impact of the program when kids come back into the classroom. Are there goals? And if so, what are they? Um, Well, the overarching goals are to increase confidence. um, But there's goals about like how to express emotions, how to stand up for yourself, how to stop bullying, and what we're finding is that kids, when they go back into the classroom and their communities, are learning how to be leaders in their schools. They're standing up for their friends. Um, parents report that their kids are more physically active, um, and those are lasting effects. And are there goals, athletic goals? Yeah. Well, the athletic goal is to be able to run a 5K at the end. So each kid, every lesson, they, have, they set themselves an individual lap goal. And then they try and achieve that goal. So they're also seeing their progress as they go throughout the 20 lessons. And do some of the uh, young people, and I'd like to be clear on what ages we're talking mm-hmm. about, do, do they come with some fear, I can't do this, or I've never done this? And I'd appreciate knowing how you work with that phenomenon. Absolutely. And so what we tell everybody is that nobody needs to be a runner. Um, and the ages are third. We have a third to fifth grade program and a sixth to eighth grade program. Um, we have some kids who walk. We have some kids who run. And what we really emphasize is that as long as you're moving, that's what's the most important thing. And what we find is that by the time the kids get to the 5K, everybody finishes. It might take some kids. We've had kids who sometimes it takes them an hour and a half, two hours to finish, but they still finish. And for them, that is, like, incredible. Are these kids who have not had athletic in their lives before generally, or are these kids who have uh, had a lot of athletic uh, training and or experience? Both. Um, I think a lot of our kids have never been on a team before or had any athletic experience at all. So for, the fir- for many of them, it's the first time that they've had this experience of finishing a 5K. Allison Berman, are some of the kids that you work with kids who, uh, who were assigned 
female gender at birth and no longer identify as female? Absolutely. So anybody who identifies as female can join the program or anybody who's non-binary or transgender. So you have an event coming up. We do. Could you tell us about the event and uh, make sure you tell us how we can find out more about it? So we are doing our first annual sneaker soiree on October 5th, which is next Thursday at the Springfield Country Club. Um, and we are doing the event because it's a way of raising money so that more kids can participate. We don't turn anybody away for financial need. Um, we have a sliding scale. About 65% of our kids are on financial aid. And so the sneaker soiree is after work, 5.30 to 8. We'll have appetizers, and we're having a au silent auction. It's online and in person. People can sign up on our websites, girlsontherunwesternma.org, um, or come the day of. Let's we'll do that more slowly. Girlsontherunwesternmass. Western, yeah, M-A, M -A, yeah, dot org. Dot org, all one word. Mm -hmm. And who, Allison Berman, came up with soiree for third graders. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not for third graders, right. but it's for our families. We just thought it'd be a fun event. People can come after work, slip on their favorite sneakers, <laughs> come wear whatever they're already wearing, and just make it a fun, a fun evening. How, how long have we been doing this? Is this an annual, annual event? We did um, some fundraisers before the pandemic, but this is our first kind of in-person fundraiser since covid other than by private donation, um, is there any other funding that you receive for Girls on the Run? Yes. So we do. We have individual donations. We do a lot of business sponsors. So on the back of all the kids' shirts, you'll see all the business sponsors. We get grants. Um, some of the kids also do some girl-led fundraising. Um, and we have all sorts of other you know, revenue streams. I'd be interested to know from you personally. I know you were devoted to the program while you founded it here in mm -hmm. Western Mass. What's it taught you? Oh, it's taught me so many things. So I'm a social worker. That's why I got into this. I'd worked with kids and families for many, many years. And we knew when we started the program that it would impact the kids. But what we've seen is how much it's impact communities, schools, families. It's become this web of um, just seeing really seeing the impact on multiple multiple levels and it's super inspiring so for, for example at the final 5k we have about four thousand people that come to that event um families community members and just seeing that impact and the support for the kids and it's also family members who've also never walked or run a 5k so it's also kind of inspiring their own families i'm wondering whether the coaches have a different experience coaching these students than others yeah. That, that's what they say. We do you know, surveys and all that at the end of the season, and many of the coaches talk about the impact on them as also life-altering, that they, one, they wish they had a program like this when they were a kid, but also that they are seeing how, how much gain the kids are making throughout the season on so many multiple levels that it's, it's having a huge impact on Could them. Could you go back to how you get the kids? Do they find you? Do you recruit them? Do teachers get involved in this? Both. So we are, um, we're at about 75 sites per season. Um, 70, what is a site? A school, generally. We are at some YMCAs. So we're all over Western Mass. So we're in 75 schools um, and a, the, a couple Ys, like I said. So we uh, advertise in schools. We put flyers out. And in schools where we have been for multiple seasons, it's become the culture of the school. Kids can't wait to get to third grade so they can sign up and do the program. 
Is this viewed as any way as being competitive with the track program at the school or anything like that? Not at all. So it's a non-competitive program. Um, even the final 5K is not timed. And so it's more just about, like I said, kids setting a goal and being able to achieve it. And so it's not competitive with the with cross country or any track programs. And so are kids who are not natural athletes drawn to this? I mean, it seems to me this yes. is a way, if you're not a jock, as we used to say, mm-hmm. sorry, excuse me, um, then there's still a place for you and your life for doing something athletic. Absolutely. And that's what's so moving is because there are kids who never thought they would be runners or walkers and they're out there and being part of a team. Um, and the the feedback we get from the kids also follows along those lines is that, you know, they're making new friends, they're increasing their body confidence, they're, you know. And do the kids stay with you after a second season? Yeah, we have kids who come back like multiple, multiple seasons because they get something new out of it every season. And the cr- we alter, the, we have multiple versions of the curriculum, so the lessons are all different. Could you stay with that for just a second because I'm really interested yeah. in this aspect. I take it that the kids who come back maybe mentors or teachers for the kids who are coming for the first time. Is that a phenomenon? And if so, how does it play out? Um, it absolutely is a phenomenon. So because the teams are third to fifth graders, there's multiple um, opportunities for being a role model in that. Um, so the kids who've come back repeatedly may already have you know, some base in terms of like how to uh, participate in the discussions or how to express emotions. Um, and then also having the fifth graders and the third graders be together is super inspiring as well. Uh, before we take a break, I just want to find out, Executive Director um, Allison Berman, I think I just cut off Bill. But <laughs> this is a fascinating conversation. But um, you have an internship program. And along the lines of what Bill was just describing, who are the interns? We have an inter- We have... We've had high school interns. Is that what you mean? We've had high school interns. I don't know. It says on your website, yep. internship. Yeah. So we have high schoolers that have been interns for us. Um, we've had some college students who come and be coaches. So we have multiple ways that people can be involved in the program. This is really interesting. Yeah. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Allison Berman. She is the uh, executive director of Girls on the Run. There is this uh, sneaker soiree that's coming on October 5th. Is that right? That's right. And we can find out about it by going to girlsontherunwesternma.org. We'll be right back with Allison. to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Jazz abounds downtown this weekend. The Northampton Jazz Festival, celebrating Max Roach with the Max Roach Centennial Concert this Saturday at the Academy of Music. The Northampton Jazz Festival, kicking off this Friday with the Jazz Strut. Free performances at seven breweries, bars, and restaurants downtown. The Strut starts at 4.30 in Pulaski Park with the Jeff Holmes Big Band. Saturday morning, the festival gets going at 10.30 in Pulaski Park as the expandable brass band leads a jazz parade through downtown. Ten free shows around town, including the return of Matthew Fat Cat Rivera spinning rare jazz 78s in the park. Saturday evening, the festival climax, the Max Roach Centennial Concert at the Academy of Music. 
an all-star band led by South Hadley-born Roach disciple Joe Farnsworth with George Coleman and Christian Sands. Get complete details at NorthamptonJazzFest.org. Jazz abounds downtown this weekend, the Northampton Jazz Festival. 1.3 million meals provided to over 8,500 people in Franklin and Hampshire counties. The Amherst Survival Center, making sure our neighbors have the food they need. Join the Amherst Survival Center's Hike for Hunger. Sign up now, set a fundraising goal, and come October, hit the trails. Ask friends and family to support your goal and support the Amherst Survival Center's food and nutrition programs. Hike Mount Toby, explore Buffum Falls, hike wherever you like. Bring your people, bring your pup. Sign up at Hike for Hunger at the Amherst Survival Center website. Doing business in Amherst since 1968. Woman owned since 2017. Summerlin Floors does it all. Hardwood, carpet, porcelain tile, natural stone. Have you considered radiant floor heating? We're sales, we're design, we're installation. Our team at Summerlin Floors has been in the flooring business for over 50 years. People are pleasantly refreshed by the experience they get here compared to some of the, we'll say, bigger options in town. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are continuing our conversation, which I'm finding very interesting, with Executive Director Allison Berman of Girls on the Run. We are uh, in part talking about the Sneaker Soiree, the fundraiser, which sounds just wonderful. It's going to be on October 5th, and um, where will it be, and what will people do there? <laughs> The Sneaker Soiree is at the Springfield Country Club, which is actually in West Springfield. <clears throat> um, and it's, for, it's open to everybody to come. We'll have kids talking, some coaches talking. There'll be an auction. Um, and it's a way to raise money so more kids can participate in Girls on the Run. What time will it be? 5.30 to 8, so people can come after work, slip on their favorite shoes, and come on over. Other than bringing a checkbook to support the <laughs> program and its, and its mission, um, is there a, a cost to participate in the speaker, speaker soiree? It's um, $25 a ticket. Uh, so, yeah, you can pay online or when you arrive at the door. Okay. And it's interesting that it's going to be in West Springfield. It's um, uh, When I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking about where I led with, with our daughter in, in Mohawk and here in Northampton where we are, but it sounds like there's a quite a presence of girls on the run there in Springfield in, in Hamden County. We, Hamden County is actually our biggest population of kids. Uh, about 65% of our kids are from Hamden. We have a huge presence in the Springfield Public Schools and Chicopee. Um, and one of our missions is to make sure that we don't turn anybody away for financial need. And it's also be just become very integral in many of the Springfield schools. So there is a cost. What is the cost for a girl to participate in the program of Girls on the Run, and what do they get out of it? So if uh, a family paid the full cost for the 20 lessons, it's $160, but we have a sliding scale that goes down to $5, and if a family can't pay the $5, we also waive that fee. Um, when they join, we also offer for kids that don't have appropriate shoes, we provide shoes for them, we provide snacks, everybody gets a shirt, um, and then they get the 20 lessons with trained coaches. It, it really sounds like an incredible program, it's, and especially when you're talking about thousands of kids that have been involved. And um, when we broke, Sarah was asking, what is the skill set that kids learn from this? We, we just touched on it, but seriously. 
So there's 20 lessons. Each lesson has a different theme. So it starts with, you know, how do you, how are you a good friend? Both how do you choose a good friend and how are you yourself a good friend? There's lessons on identifying emotions and also expressing emotions. Um, there's lessons on giving kids skills of how to stand up to others with like I feel statements. Uh, there's lessons on gossiping, bullying. There's lessons on, there's lessons called beautiful. So talking about inner beauty as opposed to external beauty. Each team, I think I mentioned, does a community impact project, so they do something to give back to their community. So if we have 75 teams a season, there's 75 community impact projects that are happening around Western Mass, everything from helping firefighters, cleaning up schools, you know, thanking teachers, all kinds of things. So, And do these programs happen at the schools so that the kids don't have to take a bus or get transportation exactly. to go somewhere else? Exactly. So most... Where it is happening at schools, kids just stay after school, and then families or grown-ups just pick up an hour and a half later after the school day ends. And is it viewed as another uh, after-school activity, or is it viewed as something external to the school? I'm trying to understand the integration of this into the, the kids' daily lives. It's, I mean, it's considered an after-school program, but we, Girls on the Run is our own, we're our own nonprofit and separate entity, so we're, yeah, but it's also an after-school program. You said this is a national organization, Allison Berman. Uh, how long has it been in, in, in existence in other locations other than the nine years you've been involved? So Girls on the Run started in 1995 in North Carolina um, and is now in over 200 councils across the United States. Why do you think it's Girls on the Run rather than Kids on the Run? Because there's, there's so much need for girls to have their own set of programming. Um, and I mean, as we all know, what's going on on a national level, also. But until, until girls, and like I mentioned earlier, all the studies show that girls definitely need their own space. So. Okay. Elaborate on that. Some Please more. elaborate. Yeah, yeah. You're a social worker. <laughs> so girls, many studies have shown that girls, starting at age nine, girls' confidence declines dramatically, and in much higher proportion than it does for boys. Um, it also shows that right now, mental health, there's m higher rates of anxiety and depression in girls in age 9 through 13. There's higher rates of hospitalization. Um, many studies also show that many girls actually communicate more and express their feelings more in girl-only spaces rather than when boys are there. Um, so there is a huge need for that right now. Well, it's so great. So this sneaker soiree is going to be on October 5th. And tell us one more time, if people want to find out about it, if people want to participate in it, if people want to contribute to it, how do they do that? They can go to our website, which is girlsontherunwesternma.org. Um, you can buy a ticket online, or you can come in person the night of the event on October 5th, although it helps if you let us know ahead of time. And yeah, we hope to see lots of people there. The ticket is $25? Yes. And um, what will happen one more time at the soiree? Um, the other thing I do want to say is that we are doing a auction, a silent uh, online auction, and that auction link will also open this Thursday. And that'll be so people who aren't able to attend can also bid on all the amazing items that we have at our online auction. And where will they see those amazing items? They will. The, the link will be up on our website when that opens on Thursday. And they could take a little preview, see what they like and don't Absolutely. like, and, and they can they start bidding anytime. Start bidding, yeah. And so that would be online bidding. Will that also be bidding 
at the site? Yes. So they can, all the items will actually be there to see at the site, but people can bid online and the, starting this week and the auction will close the night of the 5th. Girls on the run, Western org, And uh, it just sounds like a really wonderful program. Uh, I'm so grateful to learn about it. Thank you so much for talking to me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And everyone else, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. It's going to be October 5th, Girls on the Run, Sneaker Soiree. Thank you for joining us today. Are the healthcare heroes in your community? Business West and Healthcare News announced the Healthcare Heroes Class of 2023. Meet this year's honorees and read their inspiring stories in Business West. Reserve tickets to the Healthcare Heroes Celebration on October 26th at Marriott in Springfield. Healthcare Heroes is presented by Elms College, Bay State Health, Health New England, and sponsored by Holyoke Medical Center, Mercy Medical Center, the Elaine Marib Center for Nursing at UMass, and the Institute for Applied Life Science at UMass. Visit businesswest.com today for details. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 P Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station.